Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 18. Mark Horton is here to lead us today. And Mark will ask you to take over with chapter 18. All right, very good. We got down to uh, around verse 22. We've been working through Macedonia, then lower Greece, Achaia, and Paul has just been uh, forced to leave Corinth after staying there quite some time. And then he was able to finally get to Ephesus, the chief city of Asia, but he's only able to stay there a short time. He's got Priscilla and Aquila with him, but he stays at Ephesus, but not very long. He has one time to go into the synagogue, but he did not stay there's a good likelihood that he was trying to get to Jerusalem for Passover, and the shipping season would only open about March 10th, and Passover would have been early April that year. So he had a very short window, so he had to take the first ship that was heading south, and that's what he does there in verse 21. So verse 22 says, having landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the ecclesia and then went down to Antioch. Having spent some time there, he departed and went through the Galatian region and Phrygia, city by city, strengthening all the disciples. Caesarea being the port city that Herod the Great uh, had built down on the Palestinian coast, there was only one natural harbor on the entire coast of Palestine, uh, Joppa. Jaffa today, and not counting Gaza, the cities of the Philistines down to the south, but Caesarea was a marvel. It would be a marvel today of engineering. He basically created a port on a sea coast that didn't look anything like a port. Huge blocks of concrete and and made an artificial uh, jetty where the ships could come in. It was a magnificent uh, piece of work. It's just amazing. And uh, he dedicated it to Augustus Caesar. And this was the main base of operations for the Roman procurators of Judea. And they maintained a residence there in one of the palaces that Herod had built. But this is where Paul would have landed. This is the closest port to Jerusalem by far. And it doesn't even mention Jerusalem by name here. But Luke just kind of takes it for granted that the restored kingdom 
is based out of Jerusalem and that the assembly of believers in Jerusalem are still at this point in time the epicenter of activity. So he doesn't say he greeted the Jerusalem church. He just says the church, and we are supposed to understand that this is Jerusalem because you're going uphill from Caesarea. And again, in all likelihood, he observed uh, the Passover there, which is just an amazing thing to consider at this time. I recommend anyone to read some of the accounts Josephus has, or if you want the condensed version, read the books the Temple and its Ministry, or Jesus, the Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim, who was a Jew raised in Vienna in the early 1800s who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah when he went to England to go to school and uh, spent most of his life then ministering to Jews in southern and eastern Europe and writing these great books about first century Palestine and uh, and the religion of Judea before the temple was destroyed. Anyway, marvelous thing. Very condensed account here that we're getting. Luke was not traveling with Paul, presumably, at this time, because it's just a very condensed story here. He uh, goes down, but to the north, to Antioch in Syria. This was the group of believers who had originally sent him out into the world and uh, was his base of operation for many years, even though it's not really his base of operation at this time. He spends some time there to relate all that's happened. And then he went through the Galatian region and Phrygia city by city, strengthening all the disciples. This is in all likelihood the places that we've already heard about, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Antioch, and Pisidia. But in these two verses, there's 1,500 miles of travel in verses 22 and 23. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, so Luke's moving on quickly here. All right, so let's pick up the reading here at verse 24. Now a Judean named Apollos, whose family belonged to Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a man of learning, well-versed in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and was aglow with the Spirit as he spoke. He taught the story of Jesus accurately, although the only baptism he knew was John's. He began to express himself freely in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him home with them and set forth the way of God to him more accurately. When he wished to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there, asking them to give him a welcome When he arrived, he gave great help to the believers through divine grace. He argued strenuously and convincingly with the Jews, and that in public, as he showed by the scriptures, that the Messiah was Jesus. All right, so Alexandria in northern Egypt was uh, about a fourth Judean at this time in history, and a huge number of those people would be destroyed during the war that broke out in the late 60s, you know, not too long after this account. But there were a lot of Judeans there, and it was a sister city to Sepphoris in Galilee, which is just four miles from Nazareth. 
and you know we're told that Jesus was poor and and he lived out in the sticks, but he actually lived just a few miles from one of the major cosmopolitan centers of the region, and it was one of only two cities that were inhabited by Judeans that were not destroyed during the Roman War. Sepphoris was protected by the Roman officials, and the Roman army did not raise it to the ground, the other one being in Gedi down near the Dead Sea. And the greatest pictures we have of ancient Alexandria are in the floor mosaics at Sepphoris. And so if you travel to Sepphoris, to see the city where Jesus grew up, <laughs> you can go and all of the the shop stalls and everything, it would have been like going to Walmart or the shopping mall for us today, but the floors were all paved with these mosaic maps of Alexandria. And so the, the greatest depiction of the Nile, the only depiction of the Nilometer, which set the taxation rate for Egypt based on the flood level of the Nile every year, is in the floor at Sepphoris, and the best picture of the lighthouse of Alexandria is in the floor at Sepphoris. So we can get a picture of the city that Apollos grew up in by going to the national park there at Sepphoris in Galilee today. Mark, uh, may, may I ask, yeah. who built that park and constructed all of this uh, history? Who are the architects of it? Well, I have to say this a little discreetly. There are uh, most of the money for all of these things come from American Jewish families. And there are Israelis who come as representatives of the government, and they come over here to North America, uh, the United States, and Canada. And they call on wealthy Jewish families, and they raise money for these parks. And a lot of them are just magnificent. I mean, it would be hard to believe of any of these sites being abandoned or returned to farmland. They're just this one in particular is so magnificent, just because Alexandria is such an important city in the history of the world, and the most important record we have of it is at this park there in Galilee at Severus. I will say that there are Christ followers over there, but they're very discreet, and, and they're involved in the system. And there are even archaeologists who work in some of these who have become Christ followers as a result of their work at sites like this. Mm-hmm. But they, they don't, the system there in Israel does not, look well upon Jews who have become Christ followers. So they meet in homes and, you know, it's very uh, low-key. But but there are, I'd say there's a significantly high percentage of Christ-believing Israeli Jews who work at these parks, which we got to go see and meet a lot of these people. But anyway, I don't want to say any more than that. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So anyway, we have a little picture of his life there. Uh, and you can see some sites in Alexandria. I got to go there, too, on the same trip. Very important. Alexandria was the most important center of learning in the world. Alexander the Great endowed the city, I guess, with a kind of a mandate. And so the greatest collection of books and manuscripts in the world 
was at the library in Alexandria. So the idea that Apollos grew up there and was a man of learning, that's not uh, surprising. He had great opportunity. And he was well-versed in the scriptures. Again, there would have been a large number of, of synagogues there in Alexandria and many, many copies of the Hebrew scriptures. So many of us are, are uh, New Testament-centric, and so we think of the scriptures as the New Testament. But again, the only scriptures that verse 24 refers to are the Old Testament, Hebrew, and Aramaic scriptures that we call the Old Testament. This is what he was knowledgeable of, and this is what he's going to use here as he expresses himself freely in the synagogue there in Ephesus. He had heard about Jesus, and again, not by reading, but presumably by word of mouth from someone, He's been taught about Jesus, and he's excited, very excited, aglow with the Spirit. Some of the translations say he was fervent in spirit, but we don't know really. But we have a little bit of an issue here because he's not aware of the baptism that was preached beginning on the day of Pentecost. He only knew of John's immersion, which was specifically to prepare the Judean people for the arrival of Messiah, and it's now more or less uh, passe or a moot point. And yet, does he have these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit before he's had what we call Christian baptism? Well, we don't know for sure. But we saw that Cornelius' family all received these miraculous gifts of the Spirit before they were immersed as well. So, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I've heard people waste a lot of time arguing over whether Apollos was rebaptized or not. And, you know, we don't know. It's not mentioned. And it really doesn't matter for us today because there's these startup things that are, that are different. We're in the steady state now uh, of things. They were not. They were in the startup phase and things were new and exciting from one chapter of Acts to the next. You never know what's going to happen next if you hadn't read the book before. So uh, things happened you know, differently, and they didn't always happen in the same sequence as we go through the book of Acts. But what we are seeing consistently here is that the early Christians or Christ followers were working through the Judean synagogues in the cities where they lived. I mean, this is their access to the scriptures is in the synagogues. Priscilla and Aquila, they're, they've been Christ followers for years, but they attach themselves to a synagogue in Ephesus because that's their community of Judeans, and that's where they have the, the scriptures read, and it's where they invite everyone to join in, well, at least the males, <laughs> at least the male Judeans, I'll say that, uh, they are allowed to discuss what the scriptures mean. And, of course, Apollos is on fire with the excitement that all of these scriptures that he studied his whole life are all talking about Jesus Christ. And so he's 
trying to expound uh, this during the discussion time in the synagogue there at Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and they they didn't argue with him because they were on his side. They brought him home with them, and then they quietly taught him the way of God more accurately. Presumably, he had had just fleeting contact with a believer, and, you know, it's like setting a match to a prepared fire with the tinder and the kindling and the fuel would all stacked properly. You've got it all ready to go. It just takes that spark or that match and it just lights. And that's what Apollos is. Somebody had just shown him the light that, look, all of these prophecies, all of these promises that we've been studying our whole lives have all been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And this this just turned him into a firebrand. But he didn't have the intense learning that the other believers had by by having time with the original 120 who had been with Christ for the three years and most importantly who spent the 40 days with him between his resurrection and his ascension in which he opened their minds to understand all of the Hebrew Scriptures and demonstrated how it taught of the kingdom of God. And so, I mean, Margaret, this yeah, yeah, this just makes a lot of sense to me, what happened here. Yeah. Uh, aside, uh, you're talking about the resurrected Jesus' return and teaching, or are you talking about Jesus during his physical life on earth? Well, no, I'm talking I'm talking about his physical life on earth, and then I'm talking about the 40 days yes. that he spent off and on in physical form. But that was the most important, because that's where he opened their minds to understand how all the scriptures spoke of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And that's what we studied back in Acts 1. And we spent a lot of time at the beginning of this Acts study pointing out how important that was, that there was no way any of those people could have been confused about the spiritual nature of the kingdom or the timing of the kingdom. They understood that it was then, and they understood that it was a spiritual kingdom, which I know disappoints a lot of our dispensational friends today, but they will never listen to this message, so they probably won't be disappointed. Well, maybe they will, Mark. Who knows? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) maybe so, but... Most of them would be so enraged after one sentence that they would that they couldn't even hear anymore for hours after <laughs> one sentence burns their eardrums. But anyway, this is what Apollos is doing to the Judeans in the synagogue. He is he is on fire with the truth of the present reality of the spiritual kingdom of God, the restored throne of David. And he's showing them page after page after page of their scriptures all point to Jesus, not to some war in 2000 A.D., 2015 A.D. in the Middle East. You know, I don't... <laughs> no, he's, he's pointing them to, to Jesus Christ and the, and the present reality of the restored throne of David. So he's on fire. Priscilla and Aquila are excited about this too, but they take him and they're able to relate to him these important truths that came as a result of of 
Jesus' time in the flesh on earth. And so this is passed on to him, and he is then brought up to speed, and he, he becomes almost an equal of Paul by this time. And they realize that, I don't know how it happens, we, we're not told, but it dawns on, on some people that he could be a huge help to this significant number of believers over in Corinth, Achaia, and he heads that way after letters are written and all the arrangements are made. And we're told here that he was a great help to the believers there. We know from Paul's letters that that they needed a lot of help. Corinth was a very sick place, and they were having a lot of trouble adapting to the new realities of uh, spiritual life in Jesus Christ. So he, he uh, was able to help them, and he was able to continue strenuously and convincingly arguing in the synagogues uh, and in public with the Judeans, showing by the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, that the Messiah was Jesus. So it's all very consistent and you know, very exciting. And Paul will be commending Apollos in passing they they didn't spend you know a lot of time together apparently but because they were able to work independently and you know keep more going at the same time by working uh, separately well mark i don't think you have a more difficult job than uh, paul had i think his message might have been even more revolutionary than yours is and maybe we should just consider that a good example uh, maybe we ought to start shouting at the uh, at the front doors of the dispensational churches and see if anybody comes out and listens. Well, it's it's very sad because I mean the synagogue was the ideal arrangement and tradition because if you were a Judean male, you would be invited to speak at their gathering. They didn't have a priest, so to speak, who monopolized what was said. It was a community, not an authoritarian institution. It was a family community. So that made it, made it, made it easier for him to uh, get, address the crowd. Oh, much easier. I mean, much and easier because it, it, was an open, it, they, it was an open community, and it was also very pluralistic. It was the community of Judeans, and being Judean was a nationality more than any one other thing. I mean, yes, there was a national religion of Judea, but it was a nationality first. And so you have these people, you know, they're Essenes and Sadducees and Pharisees and Hellenists who had adopted the Greek culture uh, wholesale, but they're all Judeans. Their religious views didn't, you know, have everything in common. They did share the common value of the Hebrew Scriptures, but they had radically different ways of interpreting these things. And so their common national identity bound them together, and they had to tolerate a lot of different views. And so it was, it was very pluralistic, and it was open, again, if you were a Judean man. The women and the, and the larger and larger groups of Greeks, Greek-speaking people who were non-Judean, who wanted to be part of the community, 
they had to take second place and just kind of be there as observers. And if they wanted to ask questions, they had to do it later at home or in a smaller group. But someone like Paul or Silas or Apollos, they could go in and they could make points at every scripture reading and they could demonstrate. Now, again, in some places this backfired, as it did back in Jerusalem when Stephen did this with the synagogue of the Libertines in Jerusalem. I mean, they basically silenced him and then had him executed. And we know that the synagogue in Thessalonica was evil. And there was a group there that hated the gospel so much that they basically silenced any mention of Jesus in that synagogue. And so the believers had to withdraw from the synagogue there. But they were the exceptions. In most of these places, the believers are able to stay within the synagogue community, which is a very large pluralistic community, as just another subgroup with their own religious beliefs, that there would have been numerous subgroups with different religious beliefs within every synagogue community. Mark, if I may ask or interject, I have Jewish friends who spend their time trying to change the synagogues, and they never get in the door. If you went to a Jewish synagogue today and asked to be able to come in and speak, I think you could safely say that you would be lucky just to be ejected. There is no such openness whatsoever in synagogues today anywhere that I've ever heard of. Um, yeah, well, it's you know, it's a lot. It's rabbinic Judaism today. It's not what they had Judaism. at this time. And okay, so, so there's a there's a huge difference between what you're describing, which basically is uh, Jesus referring to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, I think uh, that was a reference that he made to them, the the, the sort of fallen away uh, Israelites. Well, they're, they're scattered. Uh, they're I mean, scattered. Israel is scattered, as the prophets have predicted. Jeremiah three talks about, in those days I will gather together the scattered of Israel and the scattered of Judea, and I will gather them back into the land that I promised Abraham. And so, so there's, no more, there's no more comparison between the synagogue of, of Jesus' time and the synagogue of Abraham is there, as there is between the word uh, Jew and the word Judean. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're entirely I think, different. I think that's... I think that's parallel. I mean, they are significantly different, although you can find a few links between the one down through the years to the other. You would probably see a few similarities and a few connecting characteristics and traits, but they're a vastly different animal. Again, in place of the priest or the pastor, they have the rabbi who is in charge of the institution, so that it's an institution at least as much as it is a community. Now, I believe the synagogues are in many places much more of a community than many of the churches, because in a lot of places they're just a social community. I mean, in in the Reform synagogues, but in the Reform, they're not really into study of the scriptures or a real conservative belief in God at all. It's really more of a social community. 
but they still have the institution, they have the rabbi in charge of the building and in charge of the social programs and so on and so forth. So yeah, they're vastly different, although there is a thread of connection historically between them they have evolved into something vastly different from what they were, particularly before A.D. 70, when the nation and the temple were destroyed. But I'm not an authority on synagogues today. I mean, I've never, I have a friend who took me to the door of his, but I've never been in one, so I can't claim any first-hand knowledge of modern-day synagogues. Thank you. So we, we leave there Apollos, verse 28, in Corinth, uh, arguing strenuously with the unbelieving Judeans in the synagogue there. Okay, and this brings us to Acts 19, and we'll read the first seven verses here. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the higher country and came down to Ephesus. There he found some disciples... Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. No, they said. We've never even heard that the Holy Spirit was available. Well, what immersion did you receive then, he asked. John's immersion, they said. And then Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was coming after him, that is to say, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they proceeded to speak with tongues and to prophesy. The men were about twelve in all. So Paul, in two verses, traveled 1,500 miles. Well, now he's got several hundred more miles to go west to get out of Galatia and get into Asia Minor, where Ephesus was on the far western coast of modern-day Turkey. So he had a long way to go. So Apollos has had all of this going on there, and Paul, he's obviously moving quickly. He's covering a lot of ground quickly, but he's able to go back and check on these places where there were groups of believers, and he finally gets back to Ephesus. And he finds some disciples, apparently, who were not where Priscilla and Aquila were, presumably, But they were Judeans, presumably, who had received John's... I use the word immersion because baptism is just an untranslated Greek word that means to cleanse by immersing in water or dipping in water. And the English translators working for the king of England, the head of the Church of England, who practiced baptism by sprinkling... They could get their heads cut off if they actually had translated the word. So they did the politically correct thing, and they just left the word untranslated and left their heads firmly on their shoulders. But it causes a lot of confusion today and needless arguing and bickering amongst people. But uh, just simply means to cleanse by dipping in water, running water water. Now, there's some nuances of meaning, but basically cleaning by dipping in water. So, this is what's being discussed here in this paragraph, is the nature of this immersion or baptism. And they had only had this preparatory baptism of John, uh, who, again, was trying to get the Judean people ready for Jesus. And Paul tells them, 
what I just said. John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was coming after him, that is, Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they proceeded to speak with tongues and to prophesy. These are about 12 men in all. So these are special gifts that were given. All of us at baptism receive the indwelling Spirit of God because we are the living stones of the new temple, which our Zionist friends don't believe has been built yet, but it has. We are the living stones of this new temple. We are the dwelling place of God on earth. That's how the book of Revelation ends. It doesn't end with with, uh, Israel nuking Iran. It ends with an angel proclaiming that, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. So he lives in us. And at baptism, we are added into the new temple as another building block, and, and the Spirit of God enters into us. But that's not what's being mentioned here. That has happened here, down to verse 5. But then in verse 6, the laying on of the apostles' hands transferred these special miraculous gifts, which were uh, unique to the first century, to the initial building of the spiritual temple of God, the new Israel. These signs were given to confirm the word that the apostles spoke. What we call the New Testament, what we're studying tonight, had not been written down. And so you couldn't go and verify things by checking the New Testament. They instead used these powers and wonders to confirm the word that they spoke. And these men were given gifts right in line with that. The ability to speak in languages that they had no training in and the ability to prophesy. And so these are both related to communicating the news about Jesus and the kingdom to more people than you could without these two gifts. Prophecy, again, they didn't have scriptures. They couldn't afford the Old Testament scriptures for themselves. They did not have the new. And so the Spirit of God was able to transfer the information directly to them to speak to others, to share with others. And that's no longer uh, necessary today. And again, the languages, we're we're still busy. Tom has a friend who does this, uh, has done his whole life, translating the Bible into different languages. But the Bible is now available in thousands of languages and more coming online all the time. So, anyway, these 12 are all part of that uh, excitement there that was going on in the first century, in the days of the apostles, while the temple was still standing. Mark, a little while ago you made reference to uh, Jesus' first 40 days from the first chapter of Acts, and uh, how this miraculous teaching took place because of the amazing construction that these people had firsthand from Jesus and how the second generation of people, including Paul and Silas and, the, and these guys, did not have that benefit of personally having Jesus walk with them, but he left his spirit, the, the, the book tells us. And in the first chapter, 
It talks about that first 40 days. If you don't mind, I'd like to refresh that for the benefit of our listeners. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, uh, he, Jesus, appeared to the apostles from time to time, actually alive, and proved to them in many ways that it was really he himself they were seeing. And on these occasions, he, he talked to them about the kingdom of God, which, of course, they were living in, just as you said, and were the new disciples of the, of the new kingdom of God. And uh, I thought it would be appropriate to just go back and review those words because they are so significant and so instructive in understanding how people like Paul and Silas had to learn so many things for themselves, not having been direct disciples of Jesus during that walk. Yeah, exactly. I mean, thank you, you know, for reviewing that. They did these miraculous gifts of prophecy were an attempt to compensate for these people not having been there during that time, although even some of the people who were there at that time had these gifts just to accelerate what was going on because a very tiny group of people, they've got 40 years to get this message out to the whole known world, at least as far as any synagogue was from Jerusalem. They have to get that far to get the news to those people because they as a people are going to be virtually exterminated in one generation's time. The rest of the world will have longer to mull over the message and to uh, decide whether to accept it or reject it. But the Judeans would only have that one generation, most of them. And uh, a few did survive, and some of their descendants are still with us today, but not too many, probably. So, anyway, good point. All right, well, we've got, I think this is a good break here at Acts 19.8. We can pick up, because this is going to talk about uh, what Paul was able to do in Ephesus for a couple of years, and then how he's ultimately going to get into uh, trouble there in Ephesus after a long stay, just as it happened uh, to him before in Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and <laughs> almost every other place that he's been. Well, Mark, That's I want to thank you on behalf of We Hold These Truths and uh, in all of our efforts and yours uh, for your ongoing mission which uh, in which you are picking up the torch for Paul and and uh, 2,000 years later and carrying on just as he instructed us to do. And I want to thank you for this excellent message that you've given us tonight. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.